Welcome back to True Crime San Antonio. I am just another San Antonio native, and thank you for tuning in. This week's episode has me questioning, how long do you punish a child for something they did when they were 12 years old? What if it was murder? The story of Curtis Edwards' murder is tragic in more ways than one. I do not have any true crime stories of San Antonio this week, but I'll be back with some more next week. You'll notice in this episode I refer to a guy named Skip Hollinsworth. I implore you to go check out his articles in Texas Monthly about this case. He's an award-winning investigative reporter, and we wouldn't know half the stuff that we know about this story if it wasn't for him. Alright, I think we're good. Here we go, episode 9. Warning, this story depicts accounts of violence and adult themes that may be found disturbing and unsuitable for some. Listener discretion is advised. Call to 911 came in, and officers were sent to the 1400 block of Angelo Street at 12.10 a.m. Saturday, September the 21st, 1991. A cab had jumped a curb, traveled through a yard, crushed a flower pot garden, and hit the northwest corner of a one-story wood-framed home. The house sustained minimal damage, and no one inside the home was injured. The same couldn't be said for the man inside the vehicle. At first, Officers said they were trying to locate a woman last seen with the taxi cab driver, Curtis Ray Edwards. At the age of 33, he was pronounced dead behind the wheel of his burnt orange taxi express cab. At 12.45 a.m. by Eva L. Hickman, an investigator with the medical examiner's office. Curtis Edwards, a school teacher, was found in the front seat of his taxi that he drove part-time to earn extra money. He had been shot point-blank in the back of the head. It was a gruesome scene. Blood and bits of brain were scattered throughout the car. Investigators initially believed robbery may have been the motive. Judging by the number of fares he had picked up in the evening, he should have logically had a lot more money on him. Detectives said Curtis Edwards went to work at 6 p.m. on Friday night and picked up several fares. A woman at a restaurant near East Houston Street and W.W. White Road called twice for a cab. Three officers with the San Antonio School District who were at the restaurant said she approached them, asked them for a ride, and told them the driver she was expecting was late. Curtis arrived and picked her up between 11.55 p.m. Friday and 12.01 a.m. Saturday, according to police records. Investigators estimate he was shot at about 12.05 a.m. Even though the last person to have been with Edwards was a woman, a witness described a slightly built black male in his 20s by the scene after the taxi struck the house. Supposedly, this black male was seen around the cab after the accident yelling for help, but the individual disappeared before police arrived. A spokeswoman for the Taxi Express said the company was offering a $5,000 reward for the arrest and conviction of Curtis Edwards' murderer. Yellow cab driver Luann Shelton, at the age of 32, was the last taxi driver killed during a robbery when she was shot to death in August of 1985. 
One round had been fired from a large caliber revolver left to be found in the back seat of Curtis's taxi. Significant evidence was also found in the cab, and the perpetrator was possibly injured during the accident, according to detectives. Raymond Arivalos, then a 40-year-old postal worker, heard a crash just outside as he and his wife were in bed watching TV. At first, he didn't think much of it. Noise was a part of life on the east side. Gunshots, smashing bottles, drunks and dope fiends wandering the street cussing at themselves. Only when a car horn got stuck did Raymond even bother to go look outside. From his front porch, Raymond saw the figure of a child climb out of the wrecked taxi cab. This child took a few steps then started to wobble. Then he got down on his knee and said, please help me, help me please. But by the time Raymond moved to go get the child, the boy rose and started walking down the street. Raymond never even got the chance to speak with him. At this time, his wife called an ambulance, and Raymond and a neighbor looked inside the cab. He remembers seeing a man laying flat on his back, with blood all over him. Raymond's wife soon joined them, and she climbed into the cab and checked his pulse. He was gone. Within a few minutes, the police arrived. As they marked off the scene, Arthur and Jesse May Edwards received the call that would change their lives forever. The call you never want to get. Their son Curtis, a grade school football coach, father of one and part-time cab driver, was involved in a car accident, they were told. They jumped out of bed and made their way to the scene as fast as possible. Arthur Edwards arrived in time to identify the body of his son. His son was dead at 33 of a gunshot wound to the back of the head. When the car hit the house, he smashed into the windshield and ended up sprawled on his back. It's not something any parent wants to see, and something that definitely stayed with Arthur till the day he died. The young man who fled the scene ran about a half mile with a fractured skull to a bridge under the train tracks where he fortunately ran into a friend's dad. The man took him home at about 12.30 a.m. The youth was spattered with his own blood from cuts on his head and his nose, and more than likely Curtis's as well. It's not been made public whether anyone ever questioned the kid or why he was full of blood, but you might get an idea why later. His mother called paramedics, who took her son to Southeast Baptist Hospital, where he stayed for five days. While at the hospital, the boy talked about the slain, and the hospital personnel called security. Karen Komperlich was working a late shift as a supervising nurse at Southeast Baptist Hospital when she called about a disruptive boy. Karen walked into his room and saw a 12-year-old boy wearing sunglasses and headphones. There, the nurses and security guards weren't having much luck getting him to behave, but then the young boy offered them a deal. He would do what they asked of him if they would talk about the murders that happened over the weekend. Security guard Robert Duncan had a conversation with the boy. He then called up one night to corral a kid who was running wild up and down the hospital corridors. When he got there, the kid by then was sitting quietly in his room and told the officer he was bored. Duncan told him to get some rest. Duncan says the boy had a cocky reply. He said that he had, he had killed one person and that he wasn't scared of him because he had a gun. Duncan called police, who were able to link the boy to Curtis Edwards' murder. Other hospital workers told the story about how the kid tried to coax the story out of them, trying to get them to talk about a recent murder. Then the Garcia, a nursing supervisor, said the kid smiled the entire time as they chatted. Tell me, tell me, tell me about the murder this weekend, he begged her. The one that would hold the most weight came from a hospital chaplain named Charles Pollard, 
who'd gone up to minister to what he thought was a very distraught patient. Pollard found the boy to be receptive and courteous. The kid talked about his dream of being a football player, how he was tough on the field. Pollard, who was near retirement, quietly listened, but the conversation took an ominous turn when the kid suddenly announced that he would have to go to jail. When the chaplain asked him why, he said, well, I killed a man. And he said, when you kill a man, you have to go to jail. The kid then asked Pollard if he'd been watching the news, if he'd heard about the taxi driver who got killed. And he said, well, he was the one who shot that man. Then he told Pollard several different stories about how it happened, but continued to come back to the fact that he pulled the trigger. Those stories gave different versions of a certain uncle's involvement in the crime. In one story, the kid said his uncle ordered him to shoot the man. Another story, the uncle told him to aim the gun at the cab driver's head and it simply went off like an accident. Even at the age of 12, in the deepest trouble he'd ever seen, this kid figured cops would never get him because they had no evidence. He apparently forgotten he had left a few things behind that night. The snub-nosed 38 pistol and a single black tennis shoe wedged between the back seat and the car door. Apparently when he left, he was only wearing one shoe. Police again questioned the kid Thursday, September the 26th, but he wouldn't give a voluntary statement. He also refused to give police a formal signed statement. Then the boy was accompanied the same day at 2.30 a.m. He was brought before Magistrate Tino Guerra, who was required to advise the juvenile of his rights before detectives could take a formal statement from him. Upon hearing Guerra's recitation of his constitutional rights, the boy reportedly changed his mind about giving police a statement. SAPD homicide detectives, armed with an arrest and search warrant, took the youth into custody at about 5 p.m. at his home on Dory Street on the east side of San Antonio on Friday, September the 27th, six days after the fatal shooting. There, police found evidence linking the boy to the crime. A dirty sweatshirt, later found to be stained with Curtis's blood, and a single troop club sneaker, size kids eight and a half a precise match of the one found in the back of the wrecked taxi cab. The kid's mother and grandmother were hysterical as he was handcuffed and hauled away. When he stepped out of the squad car at the police station, he found himself surrounded by cameramen and reporters, and like a child, he hid his face. A photographer from the San Antonio Express News took a photo of Edwin as he was being escorted down the hallway by a uniformed officer and detective, the most famous photo from this case. The 12-year-old was just 4 feet 8 inches tall and 79 pounds. He was wearing a t-shirt and basketball shorts and unlaced high-top tennis shoes. His face was peeking out of a suit coat that the detective had thrown over his head in hope of protecting his identity. The boy was the youngest person in the history of Bear County to be arrested in connection with murder. As a juvenile, the child was accused of engaging in delinquent conduct in connection with the slaying of cab driver Curtis Ray Edwards. The youth was turned over to officials at the Bear County Juvenile Detention Center. While federal law prohibits police agencies from releasing the names of juveniles, the media released his name. Edwin Carl DeBrow Jr. Edwin DeBrow Jr. was born June 24, 1979, to Edwin DeBrow Sr. and Salitha Chase DeBrow. Everyone called him Lil Boo. He and his six brothers and sisters were raised by their mother mostly, in rundown apartments and one-bedroom rent houses in San Antonio's impoverished east side. Denims were the bare minimum, 
and when Salitha couldn't cover the bills with her monthly $220 welfare check, the family would go for days without electricity and water. At least once, they had to move into a homeless shelter. She said that she had turned to liquor and crack cocaine because she couldn't handle the pressure that came with making ends meet. She had a cessation of boyfriends and suffered through her share of domestic abuse. As for Edwin's father, Edwin DeBrow Sr., he lived in a nearby public housing project. Edwin Sr. says he left his wife when he found out she was an avid drug user, and he says she would eventually surround herself with drunks, druggies, and criminals. Every now and then he would take Edwin and his other children to an arcade across from the Alamo, and he once took them to Schlitterbahn, a water park in New Braunfels about 45 minutes northeast of San Antonio. When they visited him at his apartment, he let the kids smoke pot and drink homemade wine. He occasionally took Edwin aside to teach him karate moves, telling him he looked like a baby and that all the boys were going to run over him. So that he could buy groceries for his mother and candy for himself and siblings, Edwin went dumpster diving with his cousin looking for aluminum cans to sell. On Sunday mornings, he hawked copies of San Antonio newspaper at a busy intersection. At night, when the television worked, he sat with his brothers and sisters and watched The Cosby Show and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. When the TV didn't work, he sat on the front stoop or wandered the streets by himself. He watched his drug dealers, prostitutes ply their trades. He once looked on as two men slammed a baseball bat over the head of another man. One night he even saw his aunt bleeding from a knife wound just under her chin. Edwin was disruptive in school, got into a lot of fights, he even snapped at teachers who tried to discipline him. As a result, he was put in an alternative school where teachers saw his promise. He won a ribbon at a science fair by filling a jar with water, placing the piece of cardboard over the opening, and turning it upside down without spilling any of the liquid. But he always came to school dirty and hungry. One teacher, Jacqueline Valentine, told her colleagues that she wished Edwin could come live with her. He had such potential, she said. She was worried that if nothing was done, he would just turn out to be another lost kid. How right she was. Like most kids in the 80s and 90s growing up in the hood, Edwin joined a gang. He was only 10 years old and became one of the Altadena block Crips. He wore the Crips blue bandana, flashed gang signs, and spoke gang slang. He began pumping yay, selling bags of crack, on a street corner they called Jolly Time, which got his name because it was frequented by drug dealers. The other Crips called Edwin the baby gangsta, and he loved it. it meant he was protected. And when you're a little kid running the streets, protection means a lot. He stole cars and went joyriding. He routinely packed guns. He committed small-time robberies and he shot at a customer who ran off without paying once. He went along with some other cribs on a drive-by, opening fire on a house where rival gang members lived. One evening, he was walking down a sidewalk with some cribs. One of them shot a passerby in the face. Edwin and his pals then calmly strolled over to a jack-in-the-box to eat hamburgers. Edwin said it was like he had no conscience. He didn't value human life. At the time, he thought it was better for some people to just be dead. In 1991, he met a man named Floyd Hardman, who had recently been released from prison after a murder conviction, charged with stabbing an 86-year-old man to death. Hardman regularly dropped by to see Salita, and she told the children that he was their uncle. In September of that year, just after he should have been starting the 6th grade, Edwin was arrested for criminal mischief. A cop had caught him trying to break into a car. Not wanting his mother to find out, Edwin called Hardman, 
who came to the county's juvenile detention center to pick him up. Hardman, who needed drug money, then asked Edwin to help him commit a robbery. Edwin said he would. He felt like he owed him. The robbery would end up with the murder of Curtis Edwards. When police interviewed Hardman, he said he had no idea that Edwin was going to kill anybody. Prosecutors in the Bear County District Attorney's Office would later offer him a 30-year prison sentence in return for a guilty plea of aggravated robbery, which Hardman accepted. They then turned their attention to Edwin. Because he was too young to be certified to stand trial as an adult in state district court, in 1991 the minimum age was 15. He was taken to juvenile court. At that time, young lawbreakers who appeared in juvenile court almost always received interdeterminate sentences, depending on the severity of their crimes. Their punishments ranged from probation, which they served either at their homes or at residential treatment facilities, to incarceration in state-run correctional facilities known as state schools. The amount of time they served at a state school was decided solely by juvenile authorities, but they were required to be freed before their 21st birthdays. But the 80s had witnessed a sharp increase in juvenile crime, which was blamed largely on gangs and the explosion of crack cocaine. Citizens had been demanding that kids who committed adult crimes be given adult time. As a result, in 1987, the legislator passed the Determinate Sentencing Act. It gave a district attorney's office the authority to ask a judge or jury in juvenile court to impose a harsh sentence for a juvenile who had committed an especially violent crime. If convicted under this law, the juvenile was required to begin a sentence at a state school. Then, before his 18th birthday, he would return to court for a special hearing. If the judge decided that the juvenile was sufficiently rehabilitated, he would either be returned to a state school and eventually released by his 21st birthday, or he would be discharged completely. If the judge, however, decided that the juvenile was not rehabilitated, he would be sent directly into the state's adult prison system to complete the remainder of his determinate sentence. At the time of Edwin's crime, four years had passed since the signing of the Determinate Sentencing Act and the Bear County District Attorney's Office had never used it. Prosecutors decided that Edwin provided the perfect opportunity to send a clear message to San Antonio residents about bringing juvenile criminals to justice. When the trial began in February of 1992, prosecutors warned the jury not to be fooled by Edwin's age and boyish face. Gammon Ginn, one of the prosecutors, said yes, Edwin was a child, but he was a child that kills. Ginn said that Edwin had strutted around like a rooster at the hospital, bragging about what he had done. Ginn then asked the jury, should we cut off society's notes despite our face and send him back out there? Do we let him do it again? Edwin's court-appointed defense attorney, Andy Logan, did his best to portray Edwin as a victim of his sordid environment. A boy whose role models were gangbangers and ex-cons. Logan had Edwin's school teachers testify about his intelligence. He argued that Edwin needed counseling, not punishment in juvenile prison. Let's avoid pouring one more human life down the drain, placing one more human life in a warehouse for criminals. Let's admit that he is a child and give him the one chance he's never had. Edwin sat at the defense table, his legs dangling from his chair. He gazed around the courtroom without expression. He wasn't going to show weakness. He wasn't going to give any of those lawyers a chance to call him a punk. That's how he had been taught back then, to look strong no matter what. 
After deliberating for only one hour and 15 minutes, the jurors gave Edwin a 27-year sentence, and the verdict was announced. Spectators in the courtroom gasped. Salita, Edwin's mom, was sitting in the front row. She sobbed into her hands. For a moment, tears filled Edwin's eyes, but then his face tightened. Before he left the courtroom, the 12-year-old told a reporter that the verdict was shit. Then he was led away to a police van. It was so small that the sheriff's deputies had to lift him into the vehicle. There were no winners here. Edwin soon landed at the West Texas State School, a juvenile correctional facility located in the area of Ward County, 50 miles southwest of Odessa, Texas. At that time, the state schools were teeming with gang members, and some bloods, the Crips' arch rivals, lived in Edwin's dormitory. When they heard the new boy had been a Crip in San Antonio, they quickly went after him. Although they were twice his size, Edwin fought back. He once put four Duracell batteries into a sock, which he used to beat a blood over the head. I had to fight or I was going to be pushed over, he said. That's just how it was. As the months passed, Edwin also lashed out at guards who tried to discipline him. And he even went after a teacher who criticized him in history class. He picked up a vase and threw it at her hitting her in the face and fracturing her cheekbone. He would say he didn't give a damn about anything. He couldn't see the end of the road. Fighting and rebelling were the only things he knew to do. None of his family members could afford to travel to see him, but he did get to talk to them on the phone. For a while, he swapped a few letters with Sheila Bryan, one of his former school teachers. She sent him shoeboxes filled with popcorn and other treats. She wrote encouraging notes reminding him of his potential, but she eventually stopped writing. Uncomfortable with the constant references in his letters to his fights and his allegiance to the Crips. Thinking a change of environment would help, administrators sent him to Brownwood State School in 1993 and then to Gidding State School a year later. A doctor prescribed him Thorazine, an antipsychotic drug used to treat mood disorders. Still, Edwin refused to change. He smashed the mirrors on a wall. He made wads of urine-soaked toilet paper called piss balls and slung them at guards and other staffers. He scrawled death threats on his cell walls with his own feces. He kicked a toilet until the screws loosened and then ripped it off the floor. At least once he tried to escape. On January 31, 1997, seven months after his 17th birthday, Edwin was brought back to San Antonio for his determinate sentencing hearing. Logan, Edwin's attorney, was struck by how much his client had physically grown since his trial. But what shocked Logan was Edwin's attitude. The teenager, he later said, was so hardened it was unbelievable. At the hearing, Logan tried to convince a judge that Edwin had been mistreated at the state schools. Edwin's father also testified, declaring he was a child of 12 years old and was thrown to a pack of wolves, and you expect him to come out of this okay? But when a state official testified that Edwin had racked up 178 misconduct reports during this time at the state schools, the judge had heard enough, deciding that Edwin clearly presents a continuing threat to society. He ordered him to finish the remainder of a sentence in the state's adult prison system. Edwin was driven in a converted school bus, chain bus, inmates called it, to Huntsville where new prisoners are initially processed and classified. He was later taken to what was then called the Terrell Unit where he was placed in a cell 8 feet wide and 10 feet long. 
It contained a lidless toilet seat and steel sink, a small metal desk and chair bolted to the floor, and a bunk bed bolted to the wall. Older inmates, some of whom were built like bulls, stared at Edwin, saying nothing. Others were thin, their legs shaved. They whistled at Edwin and asked him if he was ready to be their F-boy. Mentally disturbed inmates walked past his cell, mumbling threats. Hustlers sidled up to him and offered him drugs or prison moonshine. One guard looked at Edwin and said, Welcome to the rest of your life. Edwin didn't flinch. Knowing he needed to bulk up, he began working out. He joined the prison crypts and arranged for an inmate to give him gang tattoos with a melted down toothbrush and a sewing needle. He let everyone know he wasn't going to be a punk for nobody. If they were going to come after him, he was going to come after them. Edwin fought in the prison's day rooms, the hallways, and the recreation yards. In March of 1998, when he was 18 years old, he cut off a piece of a chain link fence, sharpened it, and used it to stab a rival gang member cutting open his chest and neck. He was charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon in Polk County, where he received a four-year sentence to serve concurrently with his original sentence. During another brawl, he hit an inmate so hard that he fractured his own hand. He even went after a couple of the guards who had pushed him around, throwing hot water in the face of one and trying to put a chokehold on another. By the time he turned 20, Edwin had compiled a file folder full of misconduct reports. He had spent months in ADSEG, or administrative segregation, an isolated wing of the prison where he was kept alone in the cell for 23 hours a day and fed meals through a tray pushed through the slot in the door. Maybe Edwin hadn't been born a criminal, but his experience as an inmate, the brutal fights, the oppression, the solitary confinement, the pervasive sense of vulnerability certainly had consumed him with rage. He appeared to be exactly the kind of young inmate who, in the name of the public good, needed to be kept off the streets. And then, Edwin said he was ready to make a change. He was tired of rebelling, even saying he felt different inside. He would even later say that at the age of 17, 18, he wasn't ready to be released. Edwin said he started having conversations with older black inmates, longtime convicts who warned him that he was going to die in prison if he kept fighting. He had also been reading a variety of books, including biographies of Muhammad Ali, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X, the activists in the 50s and 60s who preached a philosophy that a man can change his behavior if he changes his self-perception. He read Solo Dad Brother, The Prison Letters of George Jackson. Jackson was a black revolutionary in the 60s who wrote about his attempts to rise above the dehumanizing experiences of prison. He was shot to death by guards in 1971 following an escape from San Quentin. He then read Makes Me Wanna Holler, A Young Black Man in America by Nathan McCall, a young convict who later went to college and became a reporter for the Washington Post. He finally realized that change was not a bad thing. Edwin decided to write his own memoir, which he initially titled Lost Boy, but later changed to 12-year-old killer, the story of my life. He sat on his bunk bed with a pen and paper. He wrote about the chaotic days as a child running the streets. He even wrote about his vicious fights in state schools and prisons. He wrote about the murder of Curtis Edwards, how he randomly picked his victim. That black man he killed did nothing to him. He was just doing his job and trying to make a living to support his family. Edwin says he had no reason at all to do what he did to him. It 
seems as if the boy who could not be fixed had a conscience after all. The more he wrote, the more the shame bubbled to the surface. Writing was how he found himself, but that didn't mean he became some sort of saint. But there was no question he was changing. He earned his high school equivalency degree that year and was named valedictorian of his class. He stopped running with other crips and later signed a statement with prison official vowing to stay out of the gangs. He also sent handwritten letters to Bear County Courthouse asking if he could get a transcript of his original 1992 trial. Edward was hoping to find some way he could appeal his 27-year sentence. The more he thought about it, the more he was convinced that the sentence constituted cruel and unusual punishment. The juvenile justice system was created so that kids could have a second chance at life, he said. But it seems like all of our laws are tailor-made to keep the punishment going on for the rest of our lives. What about the second part of our lives? Eventually, a transcript was mailed to him at the William J. Estelle unit outside of Huntsville where he was being housed. With the help of a legal dictionary, he read every word of the transcript, including all the lawyer's objections and the judge's rulings. He discovered something important. The transcript was incomplete, missing the testimony of five key witnesses who had spoken in his favor. Edwin wrote a letter to the Fourth Court of Appeals arguing that the missing testimony was vital to his original appeal. The court assigned him an attorney who put together a formal appeal. In a decision no one saw coming, the appellate judges ordered that Edwin be given a new hearing in the same San Antonio Juvenile Court where he had originally been tried. Edwin, who was 27 years old at this point and had 12 years left in his sentence, was going to get another chance. He arrived in San Antonio on the chain bus. He looked out the window staring at a city he hadn't seen in years. Just before the hearing, Edwin wrote a letter to Jesse May Edwards, Curtis Edwards' mother. He asked her to forgive him for murdering her son. He let her know that if he were ever let out of prison, he was going to make a difference in the world, perhaps following her son's footsteps of helping other needy kids. Edwin told Skip Hollinsworth that he didn't write the letter in hopes of winning public sympathy. He only wanted Jesse May to know how much he wished he could undo what he did. But when Jesse May read the letter, her hands were shaking. She felt like she had been slapped in the face. That boy wanted me to feel sorry for him, she said. But he knew right from wrong when he shot Curtis. He knew what he was doing. He left me without a son, and he left Curtis's own little six-year-old son without a father. He didn't deserve a new trial. He should have to stay in prison, grateful that he's still alive. It was, of course, impossible to overstate the grief that Jesse May and her family had been forced to endure. Anyone could understand their decision to not forgive Edwin. Still, there were other difficult questions the jury was going to have to answer. How long should someone pay for something they did as a child, even if what they did was commit a horrendous murder? Is it possible there is such thing as too much punishment? And is there such a thing as mercy, a word rarely used anymore in the criminal justice system? It just so happened that two years earlier in 2005, the U.S. Supreme Court had issued a landmark decision essentially saying that juvenile criminals did indeed deserve more mercy than adults. In a ruling that banned the death penalty for juveniles under the age of 18, the majority of justices took note of a recent scientific research about the changes that take place in the adolescent brain. They concluded that juvenile criminals are immature, impulsive, and susceptible to peer pressure yet able to change for the better over time. From a morale standpoint, it would be misguided to equate the failings of a minor with those of an adult. 
with a greater possibility exists that a minor's character deficiencies will be reformed. This was written by Justice Anthony Kennedy in his opinion. He also wrote that even a heinous crime committed by a juvenile is not evidence of irretrievably depraved character. Although the Bear County District Attorney's Office asserted that Edwin needed to stay in prison because he had not shown evidence of rehabilitation, Edwin was convinced that a new jury would see that he had in fact changed for the better. He also had a small group of supporters who believed that time had come for him to return to the free world. One supporter, surprisingly enough, was Sandra Castro Guerra, the forewoman of the jury at his first trial. She told a reporter that she was still haunted by the sentence she and other jurors gave Edwin. I think we did him an injustice, just because he was so young, she told the reporter. I don't think he had the skills or the maturity to know better. When the hearing began, spectators and members of the news media filled the courtroom to get a better look at the grown-up Edwin. Salita and other members of the family came as well. His father, however, was in Bear County Jail, serving time on a drug possession. Edwin's court-appointed attorney, Lisa Jarrett, told the jurors that Edwin had already served 16 years for his crime. She noted that he had not gotten into serious trouble in several years and that he had a spotless record for the past nine months. She had them think about the fact that he had spent most of his life in massive concrete buildings surrounded by fences topped with barbed wire, that he had never walked the halls of a regular high school, never legally driven a car, or never taken a girl on a date to the movies. He missed his childhood, she said. He missed his early adulthood. The time had come, she concluded, to let him return to his family. Prosecutors, however, went through the gruesome details of how he murdered Curtis Edwards. They brought witnesses to the stand from the 1992 trial who said they had listened to Edwin brag about what he had done. They also introduced evidence detailing Edwin's violent behavior at state prison, including his 1998 stabbing of another inmate. In her closing statement, Prosecutor Joe Mata told the jurors that if they chose to, they could add years to his sentence. Is it sad that we have a 12-year-old that can do what he did, she asked. It is tragic and sad, but it's not your fault. The jurors stared at Edwin with his shaved head and Crips tattoos and bulging biceps, and they quickly decided that he was not a person they wanted back out on the streets. They voted for a 40-year sentence, the maximum a juvenile who had not been certified as an adult could receive in Texas. Edwin would have to serve 13 years on top of his original 27-year sentence. It was a gamble, and Edwin lost big time. When the judge announced the jury's decision, spectators in the courtroom looked on in disbelief. Edwin turned and stared at his family in the courtroom. For a moment, tears welled up in his eyes, just as they had done at the first trial. But he quickly composed himself and was led away, taken to the chain bus, and driven back to the Estelle unit. His buddies came up to his cell, shaking their heads and giving him a fist bump through the bars. One of the inmates told Edwin that he was probably the first person in the history of the Texas correction system who had filed an appeal, only to end up getting more time. I don't think anyone could have blamed Edwin if he had just given up after that, never to be free as long as he is seen in that portrayal of violence. Skip visited him a few years after that at the Estelle unit. Edwin talked about his routine the same pretty much every day. He works as a cook in a prison, watches TV, works out, writes his mom and sisters, even helping other inmates with their appeals. 
He also admitted that he had a couple of run-ins with prison authorities since the hearing. In 2009, he had been caught with his cell phone. He had been caught once before in 2004 with one. That same year in 2009, he had been caught carrying on a romantic relationship with a female guard. The violations had led to more misconduct reports and another stint in ADSAG. When Skip asked him if he had heard anything recently from the Board of Pardons and Paroles, Edwin sighed and pulled out a form letter he had received just a few weeks earlier informing him that he was not yet qualified for release because the records indicates that the inmate committed one or more violent criminal acts indicating a conscious disregard for lives, safety, or property of others and the inmate poses a continuing threat to public safety. Because the Board of Pardons does not publicly release its files regarding its decisions, Edwin could only speculate on why the board members overseeing his case wanted to keep him in prison. Maybe he said it had something to do with his violations regarding the cell phone and the guard, or maybe they think something has got to be wrong with him because of what he did when he was 12 years old. Maybe they think I'm so screwed up that I'm going to kill again. Edwin has not received a misconduct report for violent behavior since 1999. Surely, he said, the parole board has to see that he changed. I'm not dangerous, he said. I'm not a killer. Not anymore. The years passed and he still remained in prison. In 2015, he received a form letter from the parole board that contained additional reason for why he should not be set free. The record indicates that length of time served by the inmate is not congruent with the offense severity and criminal history, the letter read. The record indicates the length of time served by the inmate is not congruent with the offense severity and criminal history, the letter read. Apparently, the board members had decided that he hadn't been punished enough. One of Edwin's elementary school teachers, Sheila Bryan, the one who he had lost contact with before, got back in contact with him and her and her husband, Brett, and decided to hire a criminal defense lawyer, Mary Saman of Houston who specializes in representing inmates eligible for parole. I always believe in second chances, said Sheila, and I always have seen much possibility in Edwin. Saman put together a packet of information for the parole board. She noted the findings of neuroscientists who concluded that the brains of juveniles are not fully formed and that over time, even juveniles who have committed wretched crimes are able to control their impulses and change for the better. Simon included letters from several of DeBrow's supporters, from Sheila Bryan to Dr. Elizabeth Topitzer, a well-regarded New York psychologist who had developed a letter-writing friendship with Edwin. She added a report from the warden at the McConnell unit outside of Corpus Christi, where Edwin was transferred to, that laid out Edwin's record of good behavior. In October of 2017, the board agreed to parole Edwin but they ordered that he first complete the Interchange Freedom Initiative, an 18-month religious-based pre-release program at the Vance Unit. He was transferred to Vance in January of 2018 and assigned to work in the computer lab. He attended church and group counseling sessions and a Christian-based Alpha course. Beth Morrow, a volunteer who taught the Alpha course, said that Edwin never missed a session. He was really special, she said. He stood out, determined to embrace a better life. Another woman who came to know Edwin during his time in advance was Megan Risden, a 36-year-old single mother of two children who lived in Missouri City, a community south of Houston about 20-minute drive from the prison. One of her friends happened to mention that she had been corresponding with an inmate who was close to the infamous Edwin DeBrow. 
She went online and read about him. I thought, what would I possibly have in common with this guy who has had the opposite life of mine, she said. Surely this is not meant to be. Nevertheless, Megan felt some sympathy for Edwin, and she wrote him a letter of encouragement. He wrote back. They eventually talked on the phone. They talked for 30 minutes, the maximum time an inmate is allowed for a collect call. He called her the next day, and then the next. He put her on the visitor's list, and she went to see him in October of 2018. In these initial conversations, he told her about his years in prison, but he also asked questions about her life. Edwin continued to call her each day. Sometimes, if a phone was available, he called her three or four times a day. When she went to see him a second time, he threw his arms around her and kissed her. She made him happy, and you could see it on his face. In late 2018, Sheila Bryan, Edward's elementary school teacher, came to the prison and tearfully told him that she had to back out of her offer to let him live with her in her San Antonio home when he was released. Her husband had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Edwin was devastated. He didn't want to return to the San Antonio's east side, which remains ripe with the temptations of the violent life he'd long ago left behind. Fortunately, Megan stepped in and told Edwin that he could live with her at a small home she planned to rent in Pierland, another community south of Houston. Megan's parents were weary when they learned of what she planned to do, but they offered to help her and Edwin start their new life together. Many of her friends, on the other hand, were stunned and told her she was putting herself and her children in danger by falling in love with the murderer. She said, he was 12 years old when he did what he did. You really think he shouldn't be forgiven? On a Tuesday morning, August 27, 2019, after spending much of his childhood and all of his adult life behind concrete walls topped with razor wire, Edwin was about to walk into the free world as guards now led the 40-year-old into a small room at the Carroll S. Vance Unit, a state prison just outside of Houston. The convicted killer took off his white inmate's uniform and put on a new pair of blue jeans, new white socks, and a new pair of blue Nike Air Max 270s. He also had a light blue t-shirt that read, Free to be me. Gathered in the parking lot were members of his family who had driven from San Antonio. One of his brothers, Dinky, wasn't there though. He had been fatally shot in 2018 during a gang altercation outside of a barbecue restaurant. They too were wearing the blue Free to Be Me t-shirts that had been made by another of his Houston area supporters, Charlotte Pendergraft. As part of his parole, which will last for 12 years, Edwin is not allowed to contact members of the family of Curtis Edwards, the man he shot to death. That tears me up, he said. I know his mother doesn't forgive me. I want to write her and let her know how sorry I am and that I would do what I can to live as honorable a life as her son had lived. Edwin walked out of the prison gates, flanked by Sheila and his mother, Salitha. A few dozen people waiting for him in the parking lot began to cheer. In the prison dormitories, inmates watched Edwin through the screen windows crisscrossed by bars. Free at last, one inmate shouted, Thank God Almighty, free at last. Edwin turned around, raised his hands in the air, and shouted back, It's your turn next. Megum drove him to her house. He spent most of the ride fiddling with the cell phone she had bought him, calling and texting people he knew, including a member of the state's parole board who had taken a special interest in his case. He thanked him for everything that he did for him. 
and how he had given him hope all those years. He studied the phone screen. There's the Uber app, he said. I watched a story about Uber on television. He tried to keep up with the outside world best he could. Nevertheless, he looked a little shell-shocked. At Megan's home, people arrived with food he hadn't eaten in nearly three decades. Church's fried chicken, <laughs> Shipley donuts, chips and salsa, fresh fruit, kalashes, all of it. Sheila had brought chocolate-covered pretzels that Edwin and his classmates used to make in her classroom. Someone else had brought soft drinks. Man, Edwin said, I don't know where to start. He sunk down in a couch in the living room underneath the ceiling fan. Having been on a couch since the day of my arrest, he said, smiling. He noticed a placard on the wall that read, Home is my happy place, and smiled again. I didn't see anything like that in prison. Skip called Edwin a week later. He told him he had been applying for jobs at a construction company, at Union Pacific Railroad, at a warehouse, at an H-E-B grocery store, and an electric power restoration company. But so far, no one had called him back. Edwin already seemed caught up in the trap that catches so many ex-convicts who served their time but deemed unemployable because of their criminal record. He says he still wakes up at 3.30 in the morning, which is the time he had to wake up when he was incarcerated. It was an adjustment for him to get used to not sleeping on the rock-hard beds inside. When they went to a Best Buy, it was crowded and there were people behind him. For a minute, he wanted to turn around real fast to make sure no one was trying to slip up on him. Then he realized that's prison thinking. He doesn't have to worry about that anymore. Always having to watch his back. He now lives in a quiet neighborhood. He gets to play with Megan's children. He gets to take his shoes off and run in the grass. He talked to Skip about how he bought steaks that night to eat. He never got to eat steak in all his years in prison. So who am I to complain, he said. I'm a free man. He said it again. I'm a free man. Edwin hopes to make everyone proud of him in what he plans to do with the rest of his life. He is currently a member of Great Gang Rehabilitation Racing Affiliation Ties, an organization that works to eradicate gang recruitment and violence in San Antonio, Texas. He is also part of Epicenter, an organization that advocates for young children who receive extreme sentences. Their goal is for Texas legislature to pass the second look bill. Unfortunately, in June of 2021, Governor Greg Abbott vetoed the second look bill. The bill, which would have given some youth offenders convicted of certain capital or first-degree felony crimes a second look for parole at 20 or 30 years instead of 40. In his veto proclamation, Abbott said the bill admirably recognized the potential for change and encourages rehabilitation and productiveness in the young offender population. However, he said, he vetoed the bill because it conflicts with jury instructions required by state law and would lead to needless disruptive litigation. They plan to reintroduce it in the next legislative session. No matter what your thoughts are on if whether Edwin changed or not, or if he deserves to be free, he did end up serving 28 years. I can show you cases of grown men right now who served less time for murder but I can't find one case younger than Edwin who was punished more. That's why this case is so unique, and I hope Edwin finds his way. The Edwards family wanted him to serve his full sentence, and why wouldn't they? They're serving a life sentence without Curtis.
As I like to do, I want to end this story by talking a little bit about Curtis. Curtis Ray Edwards was born in 1958 to Arthur Edwards and Jesse May Edwards. There were four boys, Ernest, Arthur Jr., Glenn, and Curtis. All graduated from Whitley High School in Houston, Texas. They all won athletic scholarships and graduated from college. Ernest Edwards played football at the University of Missouri. Arthur Edwards Jr. played basketball at Baylor University. Glenn Edwards played football at Southeast Missouri University. And Curtis Ray Edwards was a receiver on the Rice University football team and got his degree in 1981. Their father worked as an auto mechanic at Fort Sam Houston. He and Jesse May attended Friendship Baptist Church and they raised their four sons to be respectable men. No one was more devoted to helping young boys or girls in need. He was constantly helping kids, said Gary Brandberg, Curtis's Taxi Express night manager. There really was no need for him to be killed. If the robber had wanted money, he would have given it to him. Gary was working the night that Curtis was killed. In a San Antonio Express article in 1992, he discussed how he leafed through a manila folder. Like other drivers, Curtis's folder contained personal data, photocopies of driving licenses and other work-related matters. It tells of a 33-year-old who taught physical education at San Antonio School District, attended a truck driving school in 1984 in Houston. Edward File also holds clippings from the slain and information about a $5,000 reward offered by his company. Also included is the name of a $1,000 trust fund collected by the cab drivers for Edward's six-year-old son. Curtis Jr. Gary recalled getting the call from police shortly after midnight that September night. He needed to come to Onslow Street, something about cab 19. He knew it was Curtis. Although familiar with the city streets, Gary was so shaken he took a longer route. He knew from the officer's voice that Curtis was dead. Curtis Edwards was a beloved member of the community and it was evident at his funeral. Friendship Baptist Church was filled beyond capacity by mourners who listened to tributes from friends, church acquaintances, co-workers at the Taxi Express, and former colleagues at the San Antonio School District. Afterward, nearly 300 cabs made up the procession from church to cemetery. He had that many friends. He touched so many people and it had a profound effect. He made an impression on cab drivers more than anybody in the business. Curtis endeared himself to pretty much everyone right off when he joined the firm then the Lone Star Cab Company in 1985. Every day he would walk in and loudly exclaim, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Then he would tell you how many days until Christmas. Curtis drove nights. Teaching physical education during the day at Lowell Middle School from 1983 to 1984. Miller Elementary School from 85 to 86 and Neo Elementary from 86 to 88. The Reverend R. L. Archield said his church's most beloved youth leader was Curtis Edwards. After the slaying, the pastor said the congregation prayed for the two souls. We prayed for Brother Edwards, but we also prayed for that little boy, the reverend said. Curtis's manager, Gary, said he was sorely missed. He could be having the lousiest day, and he would brighten it. It could be cloudy and rainy and the worst day of the year, and he would come in saying, isn't it a great day? And suddenly it would be. Gary's favorite memory of Curtis is when the cab driver came in with his son's foot-tall stuffed ninja turtle and started dancing the green toy on the counter. This is my bodyguard, 
Curtis gleefully told him. But Gary said sadly, unfortunately, he didn't have that turtle with him that day. The bookkeeper recalled Curtis's thoughtfulness. No one had remembered her birthday one year, she thought, but then Curtis showed up with roses. He was always doing stuff like that. Curtis was popular with the rest of the company too. He never griped about assignments, even the ones that others would have balked at taking. He knew he had a job to do and he did it. At the time of his death, Gary said Curtis was working 17 to 18 hours a day. Only after his funeral did they learn of the reason for his dedication. Part of his earnings helped children in his church who were identified as needy. Reverend Archfield said Curtis was a youth and Sunday school leader who was well loved by the congregation, especially by parents and their children. He loved children and he loved to work with them. That's the ironic part of all this. Curtis coordinated a special program that allowed children to participate in services every fourth Sunday. Under his guidance, the children would read scriptures, lead the altar prayer, and make announcements. No one at his work knew about this side of Curtis. He didn't feel as if they needed to know what he was doing, probably because he didn't do it for an attaboy. He did it for the children. The 29th anniversary of Curtis Ray Edwards' death just passed about a week ago, which would make Curtis Jr. about a 35-year-old man now, probably with a family of his own now and hopefully he knows just who his dad was. Whether through memories or stories, Curtis Ray Edwards was and will be remembered as a good man, father, brother, and son. That's our story. Hope you take some time to think of others like Curtis did every day. If you're a fan of the show, Show your love with a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. This has been True Crime San Antonio, and I am just another San Antonio native, hoping to see us through. Take care.